It's, yeah, it's so ideal. Really good WWDC wow, and great progress from Apple. So progressing sold. They on can do no wrong. All their different fronts. Very good. Okay. On Apple Watch as well, but you know, never even mentioned that Android doesn't have a comparable watch platform that's been an incredible category defining success. Agreed. Android were just a mess when it came to what their wearable strategy would be. I agree there. I um I can see the wood from the trees and I can be critical of Brands that I do like and like some people. Started during lockdown, needed something to do. They looked at each other, they said, Hey, I like talking to you. And so, from a garden shed in a box room in West London, they're discussing tech. It's the Small Time Best Podcast. Face to face. <sighs> Have you got your beer ready? Yes, right here. What are you drinking? I am drinking a Dead Pony Club. I am too, but I've mixed it with what was left of my Elvis juice. (laughs) The grapefruit IPA. Sounds lovely. Anyway, cheers. Cheers. So, lots to cover live, in person. Where do you want to start? Anywhere, really. I feel like we should start with the Apple Developer Conference. WWDC. Yes. Not in person again. So all whiz-bangy with fun transitions, but bending the bounds of reality now. In what sense? Oh, in terms of like special effects? Yeah, so it used to be much more, we are physical people in the real world. But Craig Federici morphed out of the screen at one point, And another point, he, he jumped, jumped into through a hole. In the middle of the amphitheatre. Yeah. And fell down into the, the privacy zone. But that wasn't real. That was special effects. So they're having fun with it. They've realised <laughs> that you can, but I don't know what universe Apple now inhabits. It inhabits a strange median zone between sort of cartoony Mimoji world, which is kind of maps is heading in that direction. You saw the Golden mm. Gate Bridge become slightly cartoony. They're starting to add... Like moonlit 3D buildings. Yeah, yeah, and they're adding that reality to the the maps reality of the world. And then you walk into the Steve Jobs amphitheater and it's full of Mimoji faces in the WWDC version of reality. And then like stuff is leaping out of the screen for presentations. What were your big takeaways? Any any big ones? I thought it was good that AirPods Pro are gonna be able to amplify conversation against background noise. Mm-hmm. That's pretty cool. I thought it's great that Siri processing is going to happen completely on device. I thought it already did. I thought was so that, too. Uh, yeah, because I'm sure they did that first. Google copied second. I don't know. Maybe they're doing more on device. FaceTime being open to other people. <laughs> like That's kind of amazing. That was... Why, what's taken them so long? Is it basically the pandemic? I think... Is it, um, Unlike Google Meet, where now every app has a Meet link in it and forces you to try and meet in Meet, I don't think FaceTime is that. I think it's a premium product for Apple users. But clearly, there are times when you want people who are not in iOS world to be able to join. Yeah, obviously. Like, so yeah, so it's, good that it's good that they have that. It's good that they have that. What's this thing, sort of uh, share play or share together that has an API now? So you can watch films together, you can screen share together. They did that nicely, and I like... I think I'm right in saying it will work on sort of other devices, right? So if I'm joining from my 
Android phone, I can still watch the thing that you're sharing or not? Mm, my understanding is that it's an API for iOS. Ah, so it doesn't integrate with FaceTime in the same way for cross-platform. Because mm. I thought that was point. the whole thing. Point, it's FaceTime and you add those things in, which actually is quite cool. Yeah. And it's much more slick than what... You know, Google has it for some things. And you can do this in Zoom and in Microsoft with like screen share or application share. But mm-hmm. it's not as seamless. I saw a lot of things there that were quite seamless, but that we saw, dare I say, four or five years ago at Google I.O. Um, or in, in, even in things like Samsung, they've added some things in iOS where I was like, this has been done a lot by other manufacturers. Well, so speaking of something that's been done, in this case by a third party, having your iPad, pulling it up against your Mac, and then having it as a second screen, but just instantly working, that's that's magical stuff. It's obviously, it has existed before, and yeah, there apps Duet. that do mirroring and yeah. so on. Which I had to do it. I paid all, for it. That's, that's all impressive. That company. It's great that that now just works. Um, that, that's really cool. Yeah. That was that was nice. The whole being able to put widgets where you want them and then having an app draw in, I was just like, I swear that was the beginning of, that was when Android was, it came in shapes like Oreo. And, so the, and the thing with that. Ice is cream that, sandwich. Like these were, these are, these are problems that haven't gone away and also haven't been solved. And iOS did well to hold out against them. But the app library and an app drawer and all of these other different configurations of spaces where screens can be. You've seen it in the Mac world with spaces and now it's coming to iOS. And it's it's not a good thing. You can end really? up with... Yeah, you can end up with... Okay, where is that other thing that I need to find? Was it in a conjoined twin screen display that I need to go to my drawer for? Is it in, if I click on the Safari window, will it come up in this section of it? Or is it, do I need to go to where my other, or do I need to scroll through my tabs to oh get my God, to the... you're such an Apple user. It's so funny. I think people will find it very counterintuitive. Although something that is an improvement is um, things like slide over side by side and picture in picture and all of those configurations, they used to be quite hard to get to. Now they're a bit easier to get to and the drawer is going to make them easier to sort of resurface. Mm. But I just, that so many things have begun to to break down and go wrong. Example, why is your app library there? Your app library is there is because now you can delete whole screens of your home pages. So now the paradigm is broken. Where is the app? It could be anywhere. It's in a melange of, this is the problem that Android's always had. It's in a melange of just sort of the storeroom at the back. Go into the stockroom, rummage about, see what you can find. Or is it in a nicely laid out, mutually exclusive, collectively exhaustive list that I can scroll through? They're breaking the system. They're breaking it. They're breaking the paradigm. Wow. You're so in Apple box. Hopefully you'll see this new freedom of things like, you know, being able to personalize your device for how you want it. And you'll be like, this is great. And then Android users will be like, yeah, that's basically why we chose Android. Because I know the apps I want. I put them where I want them. They're, They're literally in the place that I left them. They're not where Apple's decided to put them. Oh, that widget that I actually do need to control my Hue lights rather than opening the Hue app. That's where I chose to put it on the second screen so that I just swipe to the right and I've got it. And you're just like, oh my God, it's so confusing. Why won't Apple mandate where I put things? (laughs) 
Anyway, what are the big takeaways were there? Other than being late to the game but doing things nicely. It's pretty cool that you're going to be able to design apps through Swift Playgrounds on the iPad and then launch them direct. So you can build an app on an iPad and you can publish it. Is, is that is that what people want? I do wonder. I think it opens... So the App Store kind of changed what it's possible, who it's possible to be a developer for. And Swift Playgrounds is opening that up even more. You don't even need a Mac. Anyone can publish That's an app. True. Okay, so yeah, so it's slightly more, slightly more open, but still, you need to have probably an iPad Pro. Most people have iPad Pros, I think, have Macs, mm-hmm. so it's maybe not necessarily like like Chromebook. You know, it's a much uh, different demographic. Whereas I think iPad is just an extension of people who have all the other Apple products. I remember trying to build an Android app on something called an Asus Transformer. It was that first tablet that had like a keyboard yeah. attachment thingy. Yeah. And I used some Android IDE and tried to make it. And I was like, and it had, it had all the stuff, but it was just impossible. So I wonder whether actually, you know, that was what, eight years ago, something. Now it's probably a lot easier. And if you do want to build iOS apps, I, probably, I guess you probably can. Plus, it's now like eight-year-olds at school building it, as opposed to me in my twenties. So it's like it probably makes more sense. I want to talk um, about notes. I want to talk about cards in the wallet, and I want to talk about notifications. Okay. So I'll go through them quickly. So notes. Do you remember way, way back in the day, there was a thing called Google Toolbar that allowed you to annotate, annotate web pages? No. Yeah. So it's like a kind of a almost a pun on markup, you could mark up websites. And then when you went back to them and you were logged into your toolbar, you'd be able to see your markup, your notes, your highlights. And you could also, in some versions, in some kind of, in some feature sets, you could also kind of publish comments onto the web. Oh, I must have missed it. Um, So anyway, that's back now, but this time in a completely new version in Quick Notes or Notes, where you can actually make your own annotations on websites, which will pop up as you scroll past them. That's cool. Okay, that is cool. But in Safari, right? I assume it's like tied to... It will appear in Safari, but it will also appear in anything else that you're annotating. Oh, okay. Like, like, Like an app. Yeah, know. it could appear in Calendar or it could appear in Maps. Interesting. Okay, that's cool. So that's Quick Note, which is a kind of drag from the corner feature. They keep, they keep finding more, more ways to sort of hide gestures. Then cards within Apple Wallet. Apple Wallet has done so well. So now hotel chains are incorporating your key card. In some states, your driver's license ID that's all that. can be hidden inside Apple Wallet and with the right permissions and the user's permission, it can then share all that data that wasn't the ID with, for example, a TSA. And even your work pass, I saw. Yeah, you can badge in. That was insane. And the whole... In terms of traction, like I don't see that from Google Wallet. This no. kind of, it, it was launched, you know, uh, let's say five years ago now, and the commitment with which... It's talking to OEMs, talking to hotel chains, talking to enterprises to get the different kind of authentication protocols aligned and try and pull everything in. And obviously everything's tied up in 
deep secrecy until the launch. But once it begins to snowball, you see actually a lot of people want to be part of that Apple ecosystem and that user experience. And the, the, the users have a real, um, there's a real pull from the users. For example, for Apple CarPlay, there's an incredible demand for anyone expecting Apple CarPlay in their new vehicles in the US in more than 50%. No, I can see that. And yeah, Android doesn't have anything close because there's a lot of infighting in Android, especially behind Samsung and other big OEMs where they just want to have their own wallets alongside Google's wallet, alongside all the other ones. Whereas I think Apple have a really clean ecosystem. I'm going to talk about notifications because it's another thing that it's kind of broken and... It's always been broken. Like, oh my God, you need to see what it's like on a normal, well, on an Android device to appreciate how notifications should work. Well, I think it's a broken paradigm and it's susceptible to greater brokenness. So this time around in iOS 15, Apple have done a few more things to try and shore up the, the dam, as it were. And things are like different focus modes for work, personal time, sleeping. Things like bundling the notifications that's been done before by Apple. They're trying to do it again, but in different ways. Dividing notifications into two groups. More important, less important. It's it's a really difficult problem. It's like watching the last eight years of other people develop and solve these problems and you're suddenly coming around to it like it's just such a big problem I can't believe they're finally doing it <laughs> because essentially what we have oh is, my God. A, is we have a room full of developers and advertisers and, and publishers and, and large agglomerations of capital clamoring for our attention including Apple themselves and saying here look at me look at me hundreds of times during a day trying to give us a dopamine hit trying to give us um a new story, etc. And how does the OS help us to know what is and isn't the right thing to surface when? Well, I don't know how you find it, but I now in the Android operating system, I can easily pick and choose the type of notifications I want for every app within just I just press and hold on the app and I can just configure notifications. And I can do it even from the notification shade. And I can hold a notification and snooze it and it will come back later or I can disable all those types of notifications about mentions or things that you don't care about and I can swipe to remove them I can press and hold and drag down on it and I can quick reply to them and for a lot of things I disable them because I like quite clean a clean system but I don't know I feel like when I've on my iPhone and on my iPad notifications are a joke don't even bother because you you swipe it down and you're just in hell of the last month's crap that I'm like, what do I do? What do I do with this? Every single possible notification. Finally, they're solving it a bit, but it's like, I'm sure it would be good. I think but you're talking about late. something very specific. I think you're talking about the notification pane that pops up when you uh, unlock, when you first sort of surface. No, no, no. I'm talking about when you drag down from the top and you get notifications. Like, yeah, that's the notification pane. Yeah, that's the notification center. But... No, no, which when, is kind no, of where they all yeah. live. And all the things that you're talking about, also available on iOS, I think that still is an unresolvable problem because you're talking about a battle that it's very hard to calibrate how to do notifications right. Swipe down on yours, swipe down on mine. This is what we can do in person, nice and easy. Notice how ridiculously spaced out. And no, they're actually the making this are. bigger. They're going to make the app ones yeah. bigger and the chat ones bigger. Yeah, I know. Now they are. 
But yeah. notice how all of my WhatsApp ones are done in the in the top thing, and I can drag down to see more. Mm-hmm. How for some of these, I can I can tap on there and yep, I can you see can do them the same. More. Do the same on iOS. Yeah, now you can, but this has been for ages. I can drag it, I can press and hold, and I can silence notifications, yeah, turn off notifications. Same, same possible, exact or, same. Exact same. Yeah, but how how much information do you get on yours when you drag down? Look at it. Just talent, just look at it and be objective here. Mm-hmm. You've got one, two, you've got like, everything is like spaced out in these cards. Yeah, and they're getting, they're going to get bigger. They're going to get bigger, those but cards. But then if the cards get bigger and yeah. you've got the same number of notifications, you're just scrolling. Yeah. All, you don't get This information view. density is a bit is a bit overwhelming. It's not overwhelming at all. It's, yeah. it's so ideal. Really good WWDC wow. and you're great progress from Apple. So Progressing they on can do no wrong. all their different fronts. Very good. On okay. Apple Watch as well, but you know, never even mentioned that Android doesn't have a comparable watch platform that's been an incredible category-defining success. Agreed. Android were just a mess when it came to what their wearable strategy would be. I agree there. I um, I can see the wood from the trees, and I can be critical of brands that I do like and like some people. I think we're going to have an incredibly UK-centric uh, conversation about NHS. It don't, I don't want it to be a long conversation. I just want to know, what do I do? Because... So what's the context, first of all? Set us up. So there's a lot of fervour for people who live in the UK who are hearing that by the 23rd of June, I think, the data from your GP, that's your confidential medical data, will be dragged into something called NHS Digital and it will be... So your medical records with your local doctor. Correct. Uh, And it will be pseudo-anonymised and sort of made available to third parties and or to other entities that hasn't been made clear and that there isn't a good consultation period, if any. No one really knows how the data is going to be used or how you can opt out or how you can, you know, gain access to it. And um, there's a bit of confusion as to whether when it's pseudo-anonymised and they can basically recreate your identity from it and find out oh that's actually you with all of that data and those medical conditions um what third parties are going to be able to access it i I actually don't this is what i'm going to ask you well does anyone know because at the moment a lot of gps are pushing back because they're saying yeah but this time unlike in the 2014 where care.data was launched without gp consultation this time the gps are actually the general practitioners your local doctor are actually backing this NHS data plan and encouraging you to, to sign are. up to it. There's a lot that aren't, and I'm just confused as to like... So I'd never heard of this, and you texted me saying, what should I do about this? So I went to a .gov website, I read about it, and immediately opted out. How? And it's not because... No, but how do you actually... You have to write a letter. No, there's it's, it's simple opt-out form no, on you're the talking, .gov website. You're talking about NHS digital data, not the GP one. That's... That's what I've been trying to unpick. You can opt out of the stuff that goes to your current NHS digital stuff. That doesn't include the data that we've taken from GPs and put into the system. For that, you have to write a letter, print it out, and send it to this random thing. Oh, right. I should probably do that. And the reason why I was going to opt out is not because I don't want medical science to progress, but because I don't trust public bodies to have a basic level of digital competence. (laughs) And when it comes to health data, that's a high-risk data set to be incompetent around. And uh, yeah, for me, it's not for me. 
Me neither. And if I find out more about how to opt out, I'll let you know. Because it is super confusing. I'll write a letter. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about this very brief CDN outage and whether anyone should care? Only for an hour in parts of the world, I guess. Um, <laughs> just, just parts of the world. Some websites were down, including Reddit, BBC. The Independent... Amazon, Amazon Amazon as well. And the reason why they were down is because the content delivery network of Fastly went down because one of their customers just changed a setting perfectly innocuously. And normally that would have been fine, but there was a bug in one of the updates that they'd pushed, which meant that Fastly's content delivery network went down. A lot of people rely on that. What is a content delivery network? It's actually something we mentioned in passing last week, but it's... um kind of faster tubes and pipes in the internet and sometimes edge-based data centers that allow you to get all your stuff, example, YouTube videos, and put it close to your customers. So instead of them having to wait half a millisecond to get the <clears throat> to get the buffering done, they, they wait 0.8, uh, 0.08 of a millisecond. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, when you're relying on something like Fastly or Cloudflare, or Akamai, and you're really leaning heavily on them, and they let you down, it looks bad. I think Fastly haven't revealed which customer it was that triggered this. They've just said it totally wasn't their fault either. Mm. And they fixed it very quickly. So Is it now quickly? By the time I'd found out about it, messaged some people. You acted so disappointed, like you wanted to see a 404 page. No, I think I just wanted to experience the moment where it was actually happening as opposed to oh and breaking oh it's fixed it did feel like it was um, but i but i clearly wasn't using any of the things that were affected had i been using them that hour would have been excruciating so okay but generally highlights certain vulnerabilities with how our internet's architected but nothing to worry about it would have been a 503 of error of service unavailable okay which isn't one you see a lot Okay, I missed out on that. Yeah. Can I tell you a bit about Brave Browser, our previous not a sponsor? Yeah. So I started using the new beta version of the Brave Browser, which was something that a while ago I said they'd acquired this company and that company does private indexing for search engines. And, oh, that was it, not beta of the browser, beta of the search engine. So they now have a search engine that's embedded into Brave that I've been trying and it works really well. And the results are actually arguably better than Bing, which isn't actually that great, but not as strong as Google, but has a lot of the features in terms of the embedded cards and some of the intelligent ranking and surfacing of information based on your queries and the prediction of what your type of your, what you're searching for is actually quite useful. So I, I've got some screenshots of it actually. I started looking for the, who's the president of El Salvador? And it started predicting the search. So you can see here, like search the web privately. And then who's the current president of, and it's like predicting who's the current, who's the new president, who's the vice president. Mm -hmm. Building out the cards that yeah, you'd normally see in Google. Like kind of one box. But, so um, just to recap, the, the, the deal with this Brave browser is that it's a browser you've been advocating for. They're kind of trying to re-architect the whole 
add plus search ecosystem of the current, I guess, Google Chrome setup by allowing advertisers to pay you directly for your attention, which they do through the token, the Brave the token. Basic attention token. Yeah. And until recently, I think they were just licensing Google search results when you searched within them. Or I think your big reveal they, last time they was They didn't that have a, a search engine. So you'd have to use Google or Bing or DuckDuckGo. Or and the one. interesting thing that you surfaced last time, which I didn't know, which is that um, supposed competitors to Google, like DuckDuckGo, are in fact licensing the Google search results graph, which from a European regulatory perspective makes Google look good because there's, there are these other players. But Brave was going to go to some other third party and find its own search results content. Who do they go to in the end? They acquired a company, Tailcat, which created the search engine product Clicks, which is a completely private search engine. So they don't they don't track you or track your behaviours. It's tied into the Bayfink ecosystem so that your browser identity, which is just anonymized, doesn't require any personal data, can it can learn from that and then start making better search decisions. But mm. it's not tied to a wider <laughs> picture of, you know, you and all of the other profiles that you have online, the same way Google would be. Arguably, you might get worse results in terms of searches because, let's face it, Google's absolutely incredible when it comes to retrieving and providing information. But it's an interesting move, and I've been trying the beta, and it's kind of cool. Now might not be a great time to ask you this question, but uh, should we be worried about inflation? Why would now not be a good time? I don't know. People are like saying inflation a lot, and I'm worried that we're going to talk ourselves into inflation. (laughs) Um, it only this, requires the expectation of inflation to exist for inflation to exist. It, it, the self-fulfilling prophecy certainly seems to be self-fulfilling itself. <laughs> um, so what's happened at the moment? Food prices have been going up. The US recent inflation figures hit 5%, which I think was more than what people were expecting, but kind of in line with what the Fed has has kind of guided people on based on a, a rebound last year, no velocity of money, everyone locked indoors, lots of global lockdowns. Suddenly, things opening up, you get this kind of rebound expectation. I don't know. Personally, I think the proof will be in a few months' time, you know, another quarter down the line. Have things started to level out, or do they go from 5% to 6 to 7 to 10 I mean, that will be the the interesting one, right? Or will they just reevaluate the way they measure all of this crazy CPI stuff and then convince people it's lower to try and, like, quell sentiment? I don't know. But you're right. The expectation of inflation is growing. And therefore, I think there's a high likelihood that people will start to raise prices. People expect higher wages. Generally, things will get more expensive. That seems to be on the cards at the moment. So it was the May 40% month-on-month increase in the UN Food and Agriculture Organization's monthly index of a bunch of raw materials of food that was like the highest in a, in a decade in terms of food food prices jumping. And is that down to supply chain or climate or consumer behaviour? Oil price increases, shipping bottlenecks, cost of labour other things okay but when you break those down is 
are those things driven by the fact that there's just more money in the system? I think that's ultimately what people need to make the connection between, right? Right. So the fact that 25% of all US dollars were printed within the last two years, could that be what's causing inflation to rise? All good questions, Jonathan Tipper. Is it time for this week's Not a Sponsor? It is. What have you got for us? This week's Not a Sponsor is called On That Ass. On That Ass is... So here's the thing you need to do. Go to your top drawer and look through all of your boxer shorts. And you'll see that there's boxer shorts from different eras of your life. And they're all... It's just a mishmash, and they're all getting walks. Some are quite worn out. Some are new. You still feel good about them. Others, they're just hanging around because they help to keep the numbers up. How would you feel if, on a monthly basis, an entirely new pair of boxer shorts just arrived for £9.99, and they were a sort of series of dramatic designer bespoke patterns and designs? Uh, Well, the Netherlands-based company that started in 2014 called On That Ass will deliver you said boxer shorts for £9.99. If you just go to onthatass.com probably and uh, your first pair is free, each month they arrive in the post in a sort of airtight vacuum-sealed packet. Uh, They arrive through your letterbox and particularly during the lockdown it's quite quite nice just to receive something in the mail and um that's it really it's called on that ass i think if you do that that google search you'll get the right result yeah and it's a subscription service cancel at any time first pairs free that's really cool i think it's time for this week in crypto this week in crypto so there's been a lot busy week in crypto i feel like there's actually only been two really big stories that I want to cover. So what are the other highlights if we leave out, you know, the the obvious? Yeah, so I guess things to say, it looked like Bitcoin took another tumble down to somewhere in the region of 30k in the middle of this week. And that was its second sort of double dip down to 30k. And now it's trending back up in the kind of 37 US region. It's uh, been languishing for the past nearly three weeks now in a kind of sub 40 zone. But yeah, well, there's two two slightly unnerving dips down to 30. Uh, Yeah, that's. And then uh, apart from Solana, the altcoins sort of suffering along with it. Yeah, markets aren't looking too rosy. I think a lot of what's driving that at the moment is an extended correction from what we had before, kind of the crazy optimism and bullishness that was coming before. There is also this crackdown on mining in China, which is it seems to be picking up pace. At first, a lot of that was just people being scared about a crackdown in China. But it does turn out that in, I think, two provinces, China really started cracking down on, on coal-powered Bitcoin mining. And generally, that's a good thing. I think long term, it's forcing miners to shift to other energy sources that are greener or even allowing other miners outside China to kind of join the network and be profitable without it being concentrated in China. But I think 
that's probably suppressing things a little bit. Um, so you don't see behind this the shadowy hand of market manipulation by, for example, allies of institutional investors who need to get in at a lower price? I think there's a lot of that happening on a kind of short-term basis. But you still need... The thing is, if you're market manipulating and heavily shorting the market, you'd see these kind of like eventual short squeezes and suddenly an explosion up to the upside, which we did see a few days ago, right? When it jumped from almost 31 to 37 in a day. But I think I was listening to Willy Woo, who does a lot of on-chain analysis, and you have seen people who bought Bitcoin sort of six months ago, when it was sort of November, December, have sold. They're like, you look at the on-chain movement of Bitcoin from their cold storage wallets back to the exchanges and to sell. And that could be miners. Definitely some of it is miners. It, it could also be people who are kind of taking profit, what, what profit they have left, um, and are a bit scared and taking money off the table. Um, but no doubt, there were definitely people trying to squeeze every last cent out of those weekends and get them out of the market before they, they load up. But um, you know who hasn't stopped buying? No, someone who's really doubling down, if anything. <laughs> so Michael Saylor of MicroStrategy has... I've lost track of how much he's bought this week. So he bought another 500 million to buy Bitcoin. Yeah, that's absolutely mental. <laughs> so is he... He's borrowing junk bond money to to buy this 500 million worth of bitcoin is he buying it on behalf of other people or on behalf of microstrategy on behalf of microstrategy right so microstrategy is becoming less of a business intelligence company and more of a just a holder of what what would it be it's basically a, a, a proxy for bitcoin if you just don't have access or means to buy Bitcoin. Well, it's more like a fund, essentially. Let's cut to the big news. So El Salvador is accepting Bitcoin as legal tender and the legislation has been passed. What are your thoughts? It's the first nation state, apart from Japan, to recognise Bitcoin as legal tender. And this time it really counts because it's post the mainstreaming of Bitcoin discussion it's been approved. Already, you're beginning to see the heckles rise of the IMF. And this is absolutely kind of counter-imperialist behavior by a Central American state. And it will embolden others. Uh, I think you've already heard from, uh, I want to say, Guatemala. But um, there, no, Guyana? Hmm. But quite a few, in terms of politicians, Honduras, Guatemala, possibly Guyana and Panama, politicians from all of them have, have gone, some of them have gone full laser eyes on hmm. Twitter. Hmm. So these are all states that in the past have, and I think, you know, this isn't really conspiracy theory stuff, it's, it's right there on Wikipedia. They've had democratic processes interfered with by the US government or the CIA in the past, let's say over the past century, and living near a powerful neighbour that doesn't want you to be, uh, that, would, that would do better with you being weaker, is, is difficult. And 
relying upon the US dollar as the world's reserve currency and having to take out a lot of your loans in dollars and transact in dollars and suffering from endemic economic challenges with your balance of trade and your own fiat currency kind of goes hand in hand with that history. To try and break out of that cage is an astounding move. I don't know if it's going to go so well, but it is it is Cajones territory. So, uh, you know, bold move, sir, bold move. So it's interesting, it differs from Japan because Japan didn't allow people to pay taxes in Bitcoin. They also didn't have any articles of their legal tender that required you to accept Bitcoin. It was it was allowed as legal tender, but it wasn't essentially adopted where, you know, if someone offers you Bitcoin, you have to accept it as a merchant. And I think that... Well, there is a, in Clause 12, only if your technological circumstances and ability to do so permit. Correct. So Article 7, they say you have to do it. And Article 12, they say in the El Salvador Bitcoin one, if you don't have a phone or internet or stuff, you probably don't have to because that's a bit a bit much. It's important to note, actually, the other interesting thing, they haven't given up the US dollar. Like it's in parallel with it. And they have no intention of changing their unit of account from the US dollar. As much as I think on Bitcoin Beats, they have some things denominated in Bitcoin, which is hilarious, like a Big Mac that says 0.0000 many notes for Bitcoin. <laughs> um, apart from that, everything else is in US dollars. But um, maybe just a quick summary for people. So President Nayib Bukele announced this on Twitter. He was at the Miami Bitcoin conference that happened earlier this week talking about it. He wanted to get it into legislation, and within days, they got it passed through Congress, which was just remarkable. I think it blindsided everybody. He's working with Strike and the CEO of Strike, Jack Maulers. Their Strike is the one that does lightning payments, oh, okay. uh, lightning payment infrastructure. So they have the app. The app is the most downloaded finance app in El Salvador, the Strike app. And what lightning does, for those that don't know it, is... Bitcoin obviously suffers from high payment fees if you're trying to transact with it uh, natively on the network. Lightning is like a layer two protocol that it's more like the visa or the payments mechanism for Bitcoin. And it makes it super cheap, like factors of a penny to send any transactions, which is perfect for what they're using it for. They're using it for actual money, legal tender, right? But um, it's interesting. He, The president was on... Twitter Spaces, that thing that, you know, the one that... Um, like Clubhouse. Uh, yeah, Clubhouse copied it, didn't it? Okay. <laughs> so he was on Twitter Spaces with Nick Carter, who's another Twitter Bitcoin person who tweets a lot about... Um, he writes a lot of essays around the environmental aspects of Bitcoin. And they were talking about, you know, how the payments will work and whether the government would be involved with it and kind of limit it through wallets. And they said, no, it's all going to be open wallets. We'll use Strike, but if you've got a Lightning-compatible wallet, you can use it. No government kind of centralization. And then Alex Gladstein from the Human Rights Foundation was pulled in and asked about, have they thought about mining? And he was like, so President Bukele was like, mining? No, we're not going to get into mining. We do have loads of like geothermal 
energy that's just not tapped by because of certain volcanoes and we were planning on building these business parks around them so that they could come get cheap energy and expand and he was like i guess i guess we could use it for for mining there's like like crazy amounts of free electricity and within days marathon mining company in north america are like swooping in there like yes we'll take that cheap green energy that you've got we'll come do the mining all good there's a few things to caveat though that I think you kind of touched upon, which is a lot of mainstream media really doesn't like President Bukele and sees him as an autocrat. And I think that's kind of fair if you look at some of the things he's done. Uh, whilst he has an incredible majority and is very popular, uh, he does have some autocratic tendencies, so that shouldn't be ignored. But then like you said, you, you look at El Salvador's history and I mean who are the alternatives right you've got a Marxist left-leaning socialist party that's been there for some time and every time they've tried to get power and kind of run things uh, they've been stopped by international but mainly by the US right Um, and you've got on the right side this military army-led fascist group that have just caused massive atrocities there. And then this middle ground guy comes in, young marketer, who wants to get popular, notices that you can co-opt Bitcoin, you can just co-opt the the community and the virality of it, put your laser eyes on, we're going to go Bitcoin, become absolutely famous, which probably he seems like a bit of a narcissist. And it works, right? But it's actually really good for the people. So I'm, I know it won't do much for price action right now, but I think it's a slippery slope now because everyone else who's currently forced to use the US dollar doesn't have their own currency, can't really launch their own currency because of various limitations economically. They can just choose to adopt Bitcoin. Unless there's something that happens in El Salvador to, to bring the smack down and to prevent the other countries that are considering this from going down the same route. But um, also... You know, it's drawn on both sides of the US political spectrum, strong condemnation. It's rare to see Senator Elizabeth Warren and, I don't know, someone else on, someone on the right, um, kind of agreeing so wholeheartedly. But it's mad, isn't it? Because like you were saying, I dived into the history more. And in the, in the 80s, the CIA funded Duarte, who was a Christian Democrat candidate, in his in the elections again to to prevent the the right wing party the army party from from getting in and then that led to their massive civil war, which you know was which were a lot a lot of the atrocities that have happened in El Salvador have been funded backed or trained by the U.S. military or the CIA and then as, no matter what you think of um, of Bukele you kind of wonder about the people there. It's probably quite freeing to have someone on their side who is saying, who, who could be, say he was an authoritarian dictator, he could do the Venezuela, here we're going to launch the Petro coin, it's our own thing, we get to control it. But he didn't. He went, no, we're going to just make Bitcoin legal tender. He has no control over Bitcoin, can't really mess around with it. The government might be able to participate in mining, and then I guess they can use the Bitcoin that they mine for whatever, but 
aside from that, there's not really much they can do to control it. So it is a very freeing, very economically freeing tool for the people, which is just incredible. Uh, I've spent about two weeks in El Salvador, beautiful country, lovely people, great place. The geothermology from one of the volcanoes, uh, Bukele is saying they'll be digging a new well to extract 95 megawatts worth of electricity, which is a lot, yeah, to be able to do Bitcoin mining and then designing that geothermal specifically to be able to power the clean I'm doing lots of air quotes here. The, the, the clean uh, generation of and mining of Bitcoin. Um, yeah, let's watch this one closely to see how it plays out. Um, expect to see fireworks. Do you think there'll be fireworks? Yeah, you can't allow. This is not a good. It's not a good look for the U.S. So the the U.S. is the one that wants to call Central and Southern American states banana republics and and revels in doing so. And it didn't. It was not a happy time when Donald Trump was at the helm of what looked like an increasingly erratic and despotic nation. Now we're back on track. We're building back greener. Biden Biden's at the center of a, a, a stable administration that respects the rule of law. However, the US order, um, let's call it the American Century Mark II, is maintained by military dominance and also by the US as the world's reserve currency. And the World Bank and the IMF are partners in maintaining that order. You can't have breakaway states that used to depend strongly on the US dollar trying to find their own path to wealth and autonomy. So it's funny, I was listening to a podcast where they interviewed Alex Gladstein about it, and and he made the, he made the point that like a previous America, maybe like Carter administration, Reagan administration, Kennedy administration, you know, Bukele could you'd hear something on the news about a plane crash or disappearance or whatever, which has happened. Like look at Allende in Chile. It's it's like you can Wikipedia it. It def- like you said these aren't conspiracy theories. I think. It's going to be difficult this time because I think the US has like other battles that it needs to solve. And actually between US hegemony, the petrodollar, the IMF, you know, I don't think they're in a position where they can take that tactic again with with Central or, or South America. You've you've seen even like Argentina and stuff get involved in this. Like it's not the Central America, it's the whole of Central and South America who have really had a tough time with like their neighbour to the north when it comes to interference. <laughs> All of them are getting the sense now that not only can they get some economic independence by adopting a Bitcoin standard and breaking away from all the ties they have to the dollar, but you saw what happened uh, after the Miami conference. Like, there's been just this swoop from the Bitcoin community to go and help out. The fact that, like, Marathon are getting involved in mind, like, US companies are going to get involved in it. I just think it's going to be difficult for some typical tactics that we've seen in the last few decades play out. But anyway, I really, really like this story. I think it's one of my favourite ones of of the year, to be honest. Do you want to talk about the challenges of working at Payward Kraken from a security standpoint? That article was so so funny. 
This is an article in um, Bloomberg Business Week. I think it was this past week. Essentially, if you work for the Kraken parent company, Paywood, as an employee, you'll have a lot of training around security practices. You'll then be encouraged to install security cameras in your home. The CEO takes things further. He doesn't permit his daughter to connect his connect her Nintendo Switch to the internet. And everyone except the CEO will not disclose which company they work for. The CEO, having done, having had a lot of kind of deep background checks on the amount of information on the internet and the dark web about him, now for 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 press purposes can disclose that he works for and is the CEO of Kraken. Um, yeah, the security practices seem to run deep. It's the only company that I can think of that does this. A lot of companies will pay lip service to it and they'll they'll kind of take a risk-based approach where it's like, oh, kind of free and easy, but then if things go wrong, then we'll clamp it down and then we'll pay in, you know, you'll, they'll invest in cybersecurity maybe too late, whereas they've got, you know how some com- companies, they um, they have like one thing that drives them, like it might be safety or it might be customer satisfaction. For Kraken or for, uh, I guess, Payward, it's cybersecurity, but at every level. And the fact that, like, you've got some of the wealthiest employees, all day to CEO, not dressing in the clothes they want to wear to work, but wearing, like, a $9 Uniqlo t-shirt and just in jeans and just, you know, go in, just look like anyone else when you just go into the office. It's just... That's that's it's, part of it. They're required to dress shabby. It's so crazy, and they cannot tell anyone, including their wife, where the office is. And and when they go, to, what was the one about when they go to company parties? They have to have like uh, they have to sign, and their kids have to sign NDAs. <laughs> Employees' children have to sign a non-disclosure agreement before attending company parties, unless they don't know how to write. <laughs> Kraken cryptocurrency exchange currently valued at US dollars 10 billion, billion with a B. I love it. Aside from self-custody, where you have the keys yourself and you own the crypto in cold storage, this is about the second best you can get, I think. Well, it's that time again. It's time for shitcoin or fake coin. Right. I'm going to keep mine brief this week. Go ahead. So, first one. ID proof token. This is a simple blockchain protocol designed to make it easier to provide your identity to third parties. So you sign up, you get a wallet, um, you essentially get people to sign and verify your identity against that wallet and it builds up a profile of your ID and then you can use that in lots of different places. The whole purpose of the token is you basically have to, people who want to be verifiers have to use the tokens and you have to use the, well, you don't use tokens, they use the tokens to be verifiers and to authenticate you. Yeah, everyone's on the Ethereum blockchain. There's a few like it, but this is the one that's focusing on simple identity for you know, instead of identifying by Facebook or by Google or by Apple, you're doing it through ID proof token. Mm. The other one that I've got is called Bitcoin Elon. The the code for the sorry the code for the last one was um, IDP, 
and the code for Bitcoin Elon is BTC Elon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it is what it says. It's uh, it's 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 Bitcoin, but it's Bitcoin Elon. Um, runs, so is, is it wrapped? It actually runs on the Binance Smart Chain, so it's ludicrously not even close to actually how Bitcoin operates, but uh, it's uh, it's a token that runs on that network. Does it track the price of Bitcoin? Nope. Nope, it's just a kind of pointless meme coin payment coin. Which has nothing to do with Bitcoin. It's got it in the name. Um, gosh. I've not researched mine. So I like the, the first one in a sense of, you know, it, it's the kind of thing we talk about a lot for uh, undocumented migrants to be able to build up um, an identity on the blockchain. And it's a use case that I think is incredibly valuable, a decentralized way of being able to prove to, for, for especially for stateless people and others, to be able to prove their identity um, over time. Um the second one, whilst it has problems, it does feel like the kind of thing that would would come up. So it's a real toss up. I think the I think the test has to be: is the name you came up with for the first one generic and bland enough that I can call it as a fake coin? So remind me what it's called. ID proof token. And what's the code for it? IDP. And it runs on Ethereum. It runs on Ethereum. Yeah. Okay, well, that's the shit coin, and the Elon one is the fake coin. So, the Elon Elon one is a shit coin, and ID proof token is a fake coin. I'm sorry. You you know because I, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. You just yeah. I don't I don't know why someone's made Bitcoin Elon, but it was. It was calling out to me, but then it was too obvious. All right. Um, it's my turn. So I think it's easiest if I just tell you what the things are and what their value is. And then you ask any questions you like. Cool. So um, on the one hand, we have XUSD, a partial collateralized stablecoin. And the value of XUSD Remember, it's a stablecoin, okay? The clue's in the name, USD. The value of XUSD currently is 0.88 cents. Right. Okay. Probably should be a dollar, but it's 88 cents. A little bit under. A little bit under, yep. Um, And then the other one is Badger Dollar, BDUSD. Right. um, Which is uh, 0.94 so cents. better set a dollar not point five of a dollar so yeah it's um and that's a, a meta stable coin index currently backed by curve finance lp tokens Ooh. so ask away so x us dollar yeah x usd 88 cents what networks does it run on if any um it's um if you know. Yeah, it's basically, um, it's quite complex. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it also does lookups to Chainlink. So you'll be happy to know. Okay. Yeah. And, and Badger Dollar. Yeah, Badger Dollar, yeah. What does that one on? 
it's again it's quite it's quite complex okay. do you want me to run you through it so basically a user would deposit tokenized btc into any of the following curve pools ren btc sbtc or tbtc the curve lp liquidity provider tokens are deposited to the badger sets for bitcoin yield and the badger set lp tokens are deposited to defi to to the um the Badger dollar to obtain IB BTC, which is the interest-bearing BTC. So essentially, it's kind of um, so IB the interest-bearing BTC exists as an ERC twenty. Does that help? I think so. I've seen so. There's a few of these that try and like algorithmically maintain. The price of the dollar. And then, um, where would I buy either of these? Um, I think you can get uh, XUSD on Uniswap. Um, and BDUSD also on Uniswap. Hmm. It's tough. They... they, they... They both sound kind of bad at doing what they're meant to do, but I guess. Well, that's no. The... So one of the reasons why XUSD might be lower in price than you expect, you probably expect it to be a dollar, and it's eighty-eight cents. Yeah, one of the reasons that might help you understand that is that on the twelfth of January, in a Medium post, uh, they wrote about a week ago, XUSD officially launched, and an Oracle problem nearly killed us at the start. But we're we are lucky; someone cleared the system debt by recollateralizing. Now we've switched all the price feeds for collateral pools to Chainlink, and the contracts are under audit by Solidity.Finance. I think we're at a relatively stable stage now. Hmm. Strong medium post. I'm I'm gonna kind of go with my instinct on this one, and I for some reason I think Badger USD is a shit coin, and X USD is 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 an admirable attempt at a fake coin. Jonathan Tipper. XUSD is a shit coin, and Badger Dollar is a fake coin. Okay. Well, that's that. Excellent pod. Really good. good Thank live, you very much. Live pod. See you next week. See you next week. Started during lockdown.